The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Hello and welcome to What You Missed This Week. I'm Joe Weisenthal. This is the podcast that has the best and most interesting interviews from the Daily Market Close Show that I co-anchor with Scarlett Fu, Caroline Hyde, and Romaine Bostic on Bloomberg TV. It's called What You Miss. Our aim is to take you beyond the headlines and bring you unique perspectives on the week's top stories and, well, those that you may have just missed. It's the perfect way to kick off your weekend. This week, we had a wide-ranging interview with Tom Fink, the chairman and CEO of Bearings. Bearings has $317 billion in assets under management and has been invested in Asia for decades with no plans on pulling back. So we started by asking him about the tariff impact on the markets. I don't think you can look at one day or 24 hours in market react and then re-reacting. I think we've learned that over the last decade. You know, there's a lot of noise that gets in the system. We see the market get very volatile, yet the fundamentals haven't materially changed. You know, between the original news and the follow-up news. So the way I, I would say we would observe this is a pullback's a pullback. What's causing it? A lot of time it is rhetoric, the announcement of tariffs, but does that fundamentally play through? It takes time for those to funnel through and affect the economy. Longer term, when you are a long-term investor, when you're yeah. a long-term player in a country such as China and in Asia at large, do you just believe, as the market seems to do today, that a deal has to be done in whatever capacity? I think a deal will be done. The timing of which is why you, what you're seeing, people are watching the, between the innings and, and trying to guess the outcome. The reality is uh, something's going to give. Uh, logic would tell you there will be a deal before the next elections because uh, the U.S. president's going to have to focus on the election. And, you know, the real question is, is it a good deal or not? Mm -hmm. You know, we had the same bouncing around around NAFTA. Then all of a sudden a deal was done. Mm -hmm. We pivoted to China. Japan's waiting to get their turn at bat, too. So I do think a deal will get done uh, at some point. I don't think this is intractable like Brexit. Um, but I think when and how will the markets react, who knows. So optimism over some kind of trade deal helped drive the rally this year. Mm -hmm. Also, the Fed pause was another big source of support. New York sure. Fed President John Williams spoke to us earlier, and he was talking about global growth risks with our Kathleen Hayes. Take a listen. Sure. China's data, China's growth has come in uh, better, uh, in part because of the policy actions that the authorities have taken there. Europe is still a mixed picture, and we've seen some weakness in Japan and Korea. So on, on the global growth side, I think there are some downside risks there. Financial conditions have overall improved quite a bit in the last few months. Um, so I would say overall the balance of risks is, is roughly where it's been. So the Fed is standing by and prepared to do whatever is needed. John Authors makes the point earlier today that Donald Trump's tough talks, tough talk on tariffs pushes down the markets. It puts pressure on China's central bank to stimulate the economy, which will help support global stocks, including U.S. stocks. China's counter tariffs also spur inflation, which would cause the Fed to cut rates and therefore boost U.S. stocks in the economy. 
Does that argument make sense to you? Is that what the president is engineering, perhaps? I don't think so. I, I, I don't know that it's, it's that specific to the near term. I think you have to step back. I think what the Fed president seems to be saying is there is some fundamental growth. Let's put the trade war aside. And there was fundamental positive growth in the U.S. We saw some better signs count them out China in response to their uh, uh, their stimulus efforts over the last year. Those things just don't turn on a dime. It takes a little while for it to work through. And you know, so I don't know that uh, – the resolution of the tariffs or more tariffs is necessarily going to affect what to expect in the next three to six months. So our view has been when we look out this year, we don't see signs of a recession. We think there's enough building strength to the U.S. economy and other parts of the world to to be uh, to take a recession off the table. Mm -hmm. A bad outcome on a trade war, further issues on Brexit. Over time, could that bring in the next recession, 2020, 2021, and beyond? Maybe. But right now, I don't think it would in the you've, near term. You've been traveling, been traveling yeah. to Asia. What do you, people, your colleagues say over there? What do your clients say over there at the moment? How do they see this? How they see the trade war or the economy? Both. Well, I think people get concerned when you have the two largest economies in the midst of a trade war. I think people probably have more expectation that something will be get, get done. I think some of that, we did get a new NAFTA, for lack of a better word, mm. done earlier. Uh, it's probably less of a focus over in Europe, where that is dominated by concerns over the punting down the road of Brexit. Um, but uh, yeah, business goes on. And I, I do believe international investors believe that you can't take the genie of globalization out of the bottle. Mm. Even though we have a lot of nationalism, we have a lot of protectionism, the new economy is taking hold. And the growth in the economy is coming from different industries than historically. Tom, you're a credit man by, by background, mm -hmm. but you must have been keeping an eye on what have been the stampede of unicorns, as we keep calling them, coming towards the market. How much of an issue is Uber for the overall sentiment? Well, it didn't help in the context of the last you know, 24, 48 hours. Uh, you, know, you, you have an IPO, it doesn't do so well. And then you layer on the political news that pushed the market down. So you know, these are the little things that spike volatility or sp spike concern. But I don't know that you can necessarily tie the, the two together all the time. Does it make it so that other companies that are waiting to list perhaps pull back on those plans and continue to issue debt instead because they might get a better reception that way? I don't know if it's just that. That could be. There might be some who are, were preparing for an IPO and just see the experience that Uber had and says, well, let's, let's wait this out, maybe wait till there's certainty on trade or things like that. I think the bigger thing that goes on is today is what's the value of being public versus private? Mm -hmm. And there's so much capital in the private markets and private equity growth capital. If you're trying to build a business model for the long term, is it easier to continue to tap a fairly robust source of institutional private capital versus public? And a lot of times that just doesn't fit with your strategy. Well, some are saying actually they perhaps tapped the institutional money too much before when they were private. Too many of the big players, yeah. institutions already along Uber, didn't want to get longer. How much does it end up hurting, therefore, the layman, the retail investor, who ends up cashing in just as t things turn lower? 
Well, I don't know. Maybe for the, the retail investors, it's a matter of let it clear out. Mm. Let the first six months a year clear out. And if the company has value, you may find that value later. Like a Facebook. Yeah. We mentioned that you're a credit guy by background. Where are we in the credit cycle? And what does, how has demand shifted over the last three months, four months? We're certainly long a recovery, which means you're going to assume you're somewhat long the credit cycle. What's interesting where we are now, though, is we're still seeing strong balance sheets, strong cash flow, very low default rate. So it's not, it's sort of atypical for this much time to pass and not seeing uh, maybe more stress. That said, there is stress, there is justifiable concerns that you're approaching the top of a credit cycle. Mm. But usually they come in line with a turn in the economy. So mm-hmm. you got to keep your eyes on that. Scott Miner joins our show plenty. Guggenheim have warned about the M&A f- being brought to the table, M&A fueling the debt markets. We've seen mega deals last week, mm-hmm. Bristol Mars Scrib, for example. It's also been a concern for MetLife as well, CIO. Is it a concern for you? Are you looking at this sort of huge bond sales going on and whether that really dents overall credit quality going forward? I, th- I think you got to look at the sectors. So we tend to be more fundamental than that. It's not just the total supply in the market, but how does it break down? You know, they're quality companies taking advantage of low rates and just rolling and extending capital without over-levering to, relative to their cash flow? Or are they companies in transition that may be investment grade or low investment grade now, but they have to borrow because they have to invest because the market or the industry is changing, yeah. think retailers. So I think you got to look at those levels and would you be more concerned about a retailer levering, levering up at this stage of the cycle hmm. than a growth company? Absolutely. What keeps you up at night? Is there a specific scenario that that kind of just eats away at you? It might be low probability, but high impact, and therefore is worth your worrying about. I think we really have to worry about uh, you know, the cyber world. And I think for most CEOs, cybersecurity is something you can't spend enough time on. Mm-hmm. And increasingly, we're seeing the need to invest, bring in more technology, AI, and other analytics into the process but we also have a lot of threats out there. And so I think sometimes it's the basics. And if you know we had a much worse breach of a bank or something like that, that caused people to be uncertain about the system, that probably worries me more than a cycle. I've been through cycles before. <laughs> the infrastructure perhaps is yeah. the bigger concern yes. there. Tom, we talked about trade tensions and what it means for the economy, for the markets. What does trade tensions mean for your firm and your firm's ambitions, particularly in China? Sure. Well, when you, part of our footprint, we're in, we're in 16 countries. And uh, last year we did open our office and investment operations in Shanghai. So clearly having a presence across Asia, Hong Kong, Taiwan, you're in the middle of these issues. But the reason we're committed to the region is you have to look beyond the politics of the day and look at the growth of the markets, the growth of the economies, and more importantly, the growth of wealth within the broader uh, population. Those are trends that as an investment firm, we want to lean into. Mm -hmm. Uh, We think we bring a different perspective having local investment operations around the world and not just selling out of New York into China. How is that different perspective being born, how are you growing? And you, are you looking to expand? You've got a place in Shanghai. Are you looking to broaden out? Or is it doubling down on where you already have your footprint? 
will continue to grow over time. And it's not to say we have to be in every country, nor do we want to be in every country. But the Asia-Pac region is a growth region, and China is at the core of that. So it was logical that was our priority to establish our presence there and establish it in particular in a market where we've been in the fund business for four or five decades mm. uh, as legacy bearings. So this wasn't new. The, the presence in Asia is not new. It's just the opportunity was here for us now to move mainland. Now, speaking of the legacy of Bearings, um, I, I want to ask you about the Bearings yeah. brand in Asia mm -hmm. because it's a double-edged sword, some might say. On the one hand, it's got the weight of its history, it's a mm -hmm. royal bank, all of that. It goes back hundreds of years. On the other hand, Nick Leeson was a trader based in Singapore who was trading Nikkei futures, went horribly wrong, and he took the bank down with him in the mid-90s. That's something that people remember, not just, of course, in the UK, around the world, but particularly in Asia because of where he was based and where sure. all the action was. Well, it's not a, uh, so much about the past, but the future. And fewer and fewer oh, people. Oh, what a answer! <laughs> fewer and fewer people remember that. It's, we're dating ourselves, I think, a little bit here. <laughs> Mid nineties. But, but you know, I looked at it this way. Uh, we brought together four firms that all had history. Mm -hmm. When we were looking at the brand, there was a couple things that drove the decision. One, we are a global firm. Uh, Forty percent of our employees are outside the United States. So I remind everybody, we're not a U.S. firm. We're a global firm. The Bearings name is a name that rings through the global financial history. Uh, and I think that's as much the reason to have a recognizable brand. And it does matter when you're competing for shelf space. So in the end, uh, we looked beyond that one instance and really looked at redefining the brand based on who we are today and in the future. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. This week, Bitcoin enthusiasts are cheering on the crypto's resurgence. The cryptocurrency crossed the 8,000 mark only to fall back to Earth on Friday and end close to where it began on Monday. No one is quite sure why the cryptocurrency has been rallying, so we turned to a pioneer in the field of crypto investing for answers. We spoke with Barry Silbert, who began buying Bitcoin way back in 2012 and is now the founder and CEO of the Digital Currency Group, which backs more than 145 crypto companies and also owns Grayscale Investments, the largest digital currency asset manager. We started by asking him about the recent rally and if it was just a market swing or if things are really different this time. It's, it's probably more the latter, but look, sentiment, uh, techs, the, the, the technicals look great. I mean, 80% drawdown in price happens, what, three, four times before. Every time that's happened, record highs. So as soon as you get the price going back up, uh, animal instincts come back. But the difference between this uh, increase in price versus the bubble in 17 is the infrastructure is much different. You have 
custodians now, you have trading software, you have compliance software, uh, people were educated about the asset class. So this time is, is different. That's interesting because it seems like part of the sell-off that we had had to do with maybe perceptions of trust or mistrust uh, with regards to just the entire space. And the ICOs in particular. Right. Exactly. So you think that has sort of been, if not resolved, at least sort of uh, addressed to some degree? Well, I think 2018 had, it was the unwind of the ICO market. So mm -hmm. you had all of the demand for ICOs went away, and mm -hmm. then the projects that raised all the Bitcoin were trying to stay in business and we're selling the Bitcoin. So, um, yeah, I mean, look, the sentiment has been fantastic. Uh, we just launched a, uh, a, a big advertising campaign right actually just before the price started going up. So our campaign would have actually had an impact. I think we can show it. We've got some pictures of the campaign. The campaign's all really based upon, Barry, trying to get people to start seeing digital gold as gold and getting gold bugs into digital gold. What do you think is the number one thing you need to break in terms of viewpoints? So the ad is really designed to be provocative um, and, and start is. a conversation. It's very entertaining, yes. ad, by the way. Yes. Yeah, I love Thank trolling you. and I'm a connoisseur of it. And anything that provokes gold bugs this way, like how many angry tweets did you get from like gold people so this has already this gotten uh, over a million views and it's actually wow. just starting today appearing on tv so the commercials just started being broadcast today look i think the, the what's important is to start the conversation um and to look highlight number one um, there's a generational shift that's happening in the way that investors think about gold so the younger generation, I grew up, I, I was born after the gold standard, didn't grow up during a period of war where you had to be able to store your money via something like gold. The younger generation, money is digital. Anybody who has a phone can now access this new access, um, asset class. And so you have what is approximate $68 trillion of wealth being handed down from boomers to X's and Y's and millennials over the next 25 years. That's not going to stay in gold. It's not going to all go into Bitcoin, but whatever is in gold is certainly going to diversify into something else. So, you know, as someone who actually does collect gold and has done since he was a kid, you know, I, I can open up my safe and I can see my gold. The concern I don't know why that gold. doesn't surprise me. No. <laughs> There's a lot you're going to learn about me. <laughs> don't tell everyone your address so they come and look. No, exactly. But, you know, I mean, there was sort of the physical nature of it, at least for people of a certain generation. Right. It does provide a little bit of comfort, whether it's a great store of value or not. That's, yeah. that's definitely debatable. Well, and, yeah. And look, I think so, where gold has history and cultural yeah. significance, yeah. it lacks in utility. It right. lacks in usefulness. Bitcoin as a financial rail, as a way to move money around the world, as a new financial system, um, has the potential to be incredibly valued from an intrinsic perspective. Mm -hmm. Gold is, look, it's, it's used in jewelry. It's use in electronics is down like 30% over the past nine years. Mm -hmm. So while smartphone sales are going up and computers are going, sales are going up, it's use in, it, it's real only real utility is actually going down. In fact, the more expensive gold gets, the less useful it is because you, they substitute it out for something else. So it's central banks buying. So basically, if you're buying gold, you're betting on the central banks, which is weird because gold bugs think that central bankers are idiots and don't know monetary fiscal policy. So there's a real disconnect between, OK, I'm going to bet on the bankers doing the right thing, yet they're the ones who are buying gold right now. Uh, let's go back to the change in infrastructure from 2017. There now is more software, more custodial uh, platforms so that institutional investors can actually get into the space. What do you see on the ground? Can you give any sort of numbers or sort of mm. hard data to back this up? 
or beyond just the stories of they're finally into it? So uh, Grayscale Investments, um, which is the manager of the Bitcoin Trust, which yeah. is phrased publicly, um, um, symbol GBTC, in the first quarter of this year, um, 70, over 70% of the money that came in was from institutional investors. And what's interesting is over 90% of it went into just our Bitcoin fund. We have 10 funds. So where the demand is coming from, it's institutions now, and it's right now just Bitcoin. Had it been retail? Um, well, we saw uh, a broadening from individuals and family offices into the, into the hedge funds in Q1. And I, I want to get your take because when we introduced you, we said you've got more than 145 cryptos in whatever way that Company, might be. Companies. Companies, yes. companies, cryptos, which some of them are based on new protocols and potentially not Bitcoin being the be all and end all when it comes to cryptocurrencies. Where do you see the ecosystem when Bitcoin seems to be the out and out winner? Will it become one? Can there be a sea of many? I think that there, there's going to be winners in particular use cases. So I think for, for gold, digital gold will be Bitcoin. Uh, I think privacy will be a very big uh, use case. And so there's digital currencies we like, like Zcash and Horizon for mm -hmm. privacy. There'll be smart contracts. We like something called Ethereum Classic for smart contracts. But I don't think that there's going to be hundreds of winners. There's okay. going to be a handful of winners. You, I want to go back to that. You said you, most of the money, a lot of the money is going to the Bitcoin fund. You said you have 10. I just looked them up. I've never heard of... Well, I mean, I've heard like the Stellar Lumens Trust, the XRP Trust. What's the Horizon Trust? Is that a coin? That's a privacy coin. Okay, so do you think that the proliferation of all these coin products, and you're talking about ICOs in 2017, helped contribute to the collapse of the bubble? It's like, here's just so much supply oh, coming onto the market, of course. and it just got swamped. And do you think that all your products contributed to that? Well, look, I think there's thousands of cryptocurrencies out there, and our products, uh, you know, nine of them are basically in the top 15, and then our 10th product is a large-cap fund that allows you to invest across basically the top five cryptocurrencies. So, look, I think the ICO boom um, brought a lot of capital to the space, brought a lot of attention. I think that there was probably some negative consequences of it. But, look, this is an incredibly exciting uh, industry that's innovating and experimenting and trying different things. And ultimately, what I think kind of came out of the ICO market, I think, is more discipline and certainly more infrastructure. And what so many people were also hanging their hat, hat on and hoping for was an ETF with exposure or some sort of index they could get in on. But regulators have pushed this back. How much do you think that, yes, institutions are getting in, whether or not regulators give this the thumbs up eventually or not? Well, we're, Grayscale is actually the beneficiary with the only publicly quoted Bitcoin uh, fund out there. Uh, it's been uh, trading over $100 million a day for the past week, and its uh, assets under management have grown to over $1.5 billion. So I do think that you know, the regulators have publicly said, eventually we do think that there will be uh, approved ETFs, and we certainly expect that the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust will be the first one or one of the first ones that gets approved. Then we sat down with Ricardo Rossello, the governor of Puerto Rico. The island is trying to break out of a more than decade-long recession and is looking to opportunity zones and public-private partnerships to help spur investment. We talked about the challenges of attracting private investment while working through the bankruptcy. But we started by asking the governor about the recovery in Puerto Rico and if he was getting funding as quickly as he needed it, particularly when it came to infrastructure. 
That has been a little bit of the slowdown. Um, of course, recovery is, is sort of segmented into different tranches. Uh, FEMA recovery funding has been slow. Um, we feel optimistic that uh, HUD or CDBGDR funding is, is uh, right on track. Uh, and the important thing is that we get the opportunity to use those resources not only to build back what was there, but uh, to harden infrastructure and to rebuild better, uh, more resilient. So we've laid out a path forward. I think we have the uh, uh, framework for a very transparent uh, transformation and a very uh, effective one. Uh, so we're uh, optimistic that uh, as these funds uh, will come in, we'll be able to rebuild Puerto Rico. What's your number one priority when it comes to the infrastructure you're looking at? I, I think energy is, is critical. It, it demonstrated to be the linchpin uh, of everything else uh, in society. Uh, so we want to go from one of the worst energy grids in, in the region uh, to possibly being a, a model. That is why we've passed uh, uh, two bills. One, a transactional bill so that we can have uh, private partners come in, uh, do the transmission and distribution, uh, some generation uh, as well, but also a, a policy bill that establishes uh, where we want to be in the next uh, five years and where do we want to be. Uh, by 2050. So I think it, it puts us in a strong position. A lot of things are, are moving uh, along, both with renegotiation with bondholders and uh, structural changes. We're changing, uh, you know, expensive generation from uh, diesel uh, to gas. We're opening up uh, to uh, uh, renewables uh, in a very exciting fashion. So uh, it is, it is uh, what we're trying to drive uh, uh, right there in Puerto Rico. Let's get um, specific here, because in March, Bloomberg reported that the only hospital serving the isolated island of Vieques was out of operation because it was awaiting recovery funds. Today, you had a group of senators um, and members of the House, led by Senator Warren, writing to the acting administrator of FEMA, asking for answers, seeking an update. What's the latest on that? Well, well it's, it's an important uh, question. You know, we've been working on, on that uh, particular project for a while, and it becomes uh, uh, sort of an example of uh, everything else that's going on in the island as well. Uh, in the onset, the, the, you know, it was determined that this hospital was too damaged to be rebuilt. We have to build a new one. Uh, that's because it had uh, mold and fungus and so forth. So it really was better to, to rebuild one. As the damage assessment was being done, some, some point in the 11th hour, it was sort of turned back uh, to a rebuild uh, uh, effort. Uh, I think we need to look at this very carefully because uh, rebuilding a structure that's already uh, sick and isn't serving its people well, it's not going to do much, much good. It's an opportunity to rebuild a, a very, uh, you know, a modern and functioning hospital for, for the people of Vieques. We have, though, seen through that letter, Democrat support for what is happening with Puerto Rico and wanting to get funds there sooner. How concerned, how... Uh, let down do you feel by the administration or do you feel that you're making progress? Well, you know, it, it is concerning. Uh, it is concerning in particular when, when you know, we, uh, we hear statements such as the ones that the president has made that $91 billion have arrived to the island. When, when in fact, uh, we, we have disbursed $5.7 billion and in total, uh, FEMA claims to have disbursed uh, somewhere around $12 billion. Uh, so it, it, the, the process has been very slow and the reason is Puerto Rico is treated differently. The truth of the matter is Puerto Rico is a territory, not a state. Uh, so the mechanisms that were imposed in Puerto Rico for disbursement of the funds were different uh, to, uh, uh, to states. To give you a, a quick uh, technical example, uh, states can disburse once they do the damage assessment. In Puerto Rico, FEMA is the one that has the power. Now, what's the net effect of that? The net effect is that Permanent work money has been very, very slow in Puerto Rico. So much so that by this time, uh, after Katrina in Louisiana, 
uh, for every project you have in Puerto Rico right now, you would have 32 in, in uh, Katrina. And similarly, uh, in Texas, after Harvey, uh, for every project you had in Puerto Rico, you have 28 over there. So there is a significant difference. There is a significant slowdown. And our petition is, look, we're, we're U.S. citizens. Uh, we went through the, the biggest devastation in the modern history of Puerto Rico. Uh, we're not asking for more. We're just asking for what's fair. And I think that the, the uh, bill that just came out of the House uh, answers some of our concerns. And and allow this process uh, to move forward. And of course, part of this uh, comes in the answer of public-private partnerships. Yes. Long before Hurricane Maria, Puerto Rico was trying to break out of this decades-long recession, and yeah. you're looking to opportunity zones, for instance, yes. and these public-private partnerships to, to get things going. Where in the investment community are you seeing the most interest? Well, we just recently, yesterday, we had an opportunity zones uh, gathering. Uh, we're seeing interest uh, on real estate, on uh, tourism, manufacturing. Um, you know, the, the, the opportunities are, are endless. Uh, so a lot of folks are going into Puerto Rico, and here's, here's the unique opportunity that, that we have. Number one, we have what we feel is the gold standard public-private partnership law uh, in the United States. We have the most aggressive pipeline right now. We have 10 projects, public-private uh, partnership projects that are uh, moving forward. On top of that, we're getting rebuilt money so that we're going to be able to leverage some of those funds uh, for, uh, for these efforts. Um, and we have opportunity zones. And we've, I just, uh, yesterday, I signed a bill that makes Puerto Rico the most competitive jurisdiction for opportunity zones. We have the most uh, uh, breadth, 97% uh, of the island qualifies for opportunity zone. So you're looking at investors probably getting a, a return on investment of 250% uh, from their, their investment here in Puerto Rico. We need the rebuild. Uh, we want to get all stakeholders involved. And with this unique opportunity of federal funds coming in and private stakeholder uh, interest with the opportunity zones, it's uh, a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to put Puerto Rico over the hump. And finally, we did another beat on crypto. Bitcoin's recent surge is rekindling memories of a bubble. So we caught up with Travis Kling, a former .72 portfolio manager and now the founder of Ikigai Asset Management, a multi-strategy crypto hedge fund. Travis and his co-founder are advising on multiple projects with an aggregate valuation over $5 billion, including Hedera and Casper Labs. We started by asking about their strategy as a crypto hedge fund. With so much correlation in prices across crypto assets, how do they find alpha in the market? What you're talking about is what we call cross-coin correlation, yeah. which is the, the correlation of all other crypto assets other than Bitcoin to Bitcoin, because Bitcoin's the king and everything kind of follows that. Um, high cross-coin correlation is a sign of, of an unhealthy market. And so um, that's actually was north of 0.8 mm -hmm. earlier this year, which was just a sign of people not distinguishing between crypto assets at all. Starting in mid-February, that actually started to decline, mm. and it's been rapidly declining over the last several months, which is one of the main reasons that we've had confidence um, starting about six, seven weeks ago that the bottom was in for this crypto market because on a purely mathematical basis, people were actually starting to differentiate mm. between those. What about the correlation with other assets, particularly equities? Yeah, so crypto is a risk asset. Mm -hmm. Let's let, it's not a safe haven asset. People are, are speculating right now that, that one day it may become a safe haven asset. It has the characteristics to be a safe haven asset. When you line up Bitcoin next to gold, there is a framework that you can put around that, and it's, it's the six characteristics of money. It's durable, it's divisible, it's portable, it's uniform, it's accepted, and it's scarce. And when you put Bitcoin next to gold within that framework, it actually stacks up pretty well. Um, 
right now, uh, uh, Bitcoin is a risk asset, but a risk asset with a, a specific set of investment characteristics that become increasingly more attractive the more irresponsible monetary and fiscal policy becomes because it is a hedge against that. And so I think what we've seen year to date, especially after the Fed capitulated at the end of January, was um, uh, this this increased need from the world to have a little bit of an insurance policy against the largest monetary experiment in human history. Interesting. So the more Trump calls for further rate cuts and quantitative easing, the music it is to cryptocurrencies is. I'm interested by the fact that you, in your website, says, in a dynamic landscape, demands active portfolio management and flexible investment strategies. When the whole of the cryptocurrency market has been rallying and Bitcoin is on such a tear, how do you differentiate yourself? How are you being flexible with your investment strategies? Yeah, so, so we talk a lot about risk-adjusted returns, which is uh, not a phrase uttered very often in crypto, but <laughs> a phrase that is uttered all the time in my prior career path. Um, so, so we just try and find, um, look, there, there's plenty of risk that exists in this asset class as it is. But we also think that um, uh, the, the sort of risk return proposition of crypto broadly is going to be really compelling over the next one, three, five, ten plus years. And so, so we, we differentiate ourselves by picking spots where, um, you know, you can just find really attractive risk reward opportunities. Like? Um, you can, so, so the way we make investment decisions is, through, through the framework of what we call our four foundations, which is qualitative research, fundamental valuation, quantitative tools, and event-driven catalysts. And we stand up an active portfolio management strategy on top of those four foundations. And those four foundations generate a couple dozen signals in aggregate, quantitative and qualitative signals. And, and what we try and do is take the preponderance of evidence that's generated by those signals and, and make investment decisions accordingly. Within the crypto world, there's people who say, okay, the future is going to be Bitcoin. Some people say the future is going to be Ethereum. And some people say the future will be lots of different coins and all different protocols or whatever. In a, an investment in a hedge fund that creates a portfolio is inherently, therefore, a sort of multi, a bet on a multi-coin future? Um. Not necessarily. It was, it was really important to me to have full, full mandate in terms of, or full flexibility in our mandate in terms of what we can do. So I, we've got the flexibility to put our entire fund in a long BTC position. We can also put the entire fund in a short BTC position um, if the four foundations tell us to do one or the other. There, there's many use cases for distributed ledger technology. Um, money is a really big one, and Bitcoin is far and away the leader there. Mm -hmm. Right now, the value proposition for BTC relative to its status quo, which is gold, is much more clearly understood than any other crypto assets value proposition is relative to its unique status quo. You talked about the risks and sort of the immaturity in a market where you see all the cryptocurrencies moving in the same sort of lockstep with high correlation. It's interesting, you've talked about so-called risk whales in, in the market. And today, Bloomberg was showing how basically in Ethereum at the moment, Ether, about a third of it is held by just 360 or so individuals. Right. There are huge whales in crypto. How do you work against that? How do you ensure that you're not caught the wrong side of it in some way? These people who are, have great fortunes or indeed are able to dictate the movement. Yeah, so we, we've built a number of tools to help us understand that. Um, the, the broad bucket, I would say, is what we call on-chain metrics. 
because all of this software code is open source, every single transaction that's ever been made on the Bitcoin network, the Ethereum network, the Litecoin network, all of that is, is publicly available. And so you can, and it's available in real time as it happens. And so there's all sorts of, um, of analysis that you can do to see large amounts of crypto moving from one place to another. Real quickly, how much easier is it to set up a crypto hedge fund in start of 2019 versus 2018, given all of the regulatory and infrastructure that you need to do something like that? Well, we spent all of 2018 building Ikigai to launch in January of 19. You just you wait for the market to go down 50 percent in a month, and that's a good time to launch a crypto hedge fund. And that's it for What You Missed This Week. If you like the show, make sure to subscribe and rate us at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can catch our show every weekday from 3.30 to 5 p.m. on Bloomberg TV and from 4 to 5 p.m. on Twitter. Thanks for listening and have a great week. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at CarterEconomicForum.com.